Super Armenian Brothers Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew, and I'm joined here with Colt this morning. And today we're going to talk about what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And it's a good topic for today since so many people out there do not know what the gospel is. And most of them are Christians. And uh, today we're going to just be answering that question. What is the gospel? What does the gospel mean? And uh, Colt, what does the gospel mean today? Well, the gospel means a lot of things today, but I think if I had to pick one word, to point at as the center of the gospel, of course, that word is going to be Jesus. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, I think he's the... He is the good news. Absolutely. He himself Jesus Jesus Christ himself is the good news. That's what gospel means. It comes from the old English word. uh, What is it? God spell? Sure is. Good spell? Good news? It comes from that Greek word evangelion. Did I say that right? I think so. I've heard it pronounced Evangelion, Evangelion. I have no idea. <laughs> it's good news. And what's that good news of? Well, again, to put it in simple terms, Jesus. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's really a lot of things. It's one of the, I don't, I definitely don't think, I don't think in one 30 minute podcast, we'll be able to cover the entire depth of the gospel. But I think in simple terms, I think it's the good news that we have a savior. Yeah the good news that all the that we don't have to struggle that we don't have to work in some way to please god right that god himself has come in in the son jesus christ and has pleased the father for us that's right that is right well this morning we both prepared a few um for this episode we both prepared a few scriptures this morning would you like to share your first scripture and kind of the theme and what it means for the gospel Absolutely. So the first couple of passages I'll be reading from are in the beginning of the gospel according to Luke, starting in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. And it's uh, speaking about John the Baptist when he was uh, ministering in the wilderness. It says, Now while the people were in a state of expectation and were all wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. So that, and that, that's that, interesting. What was that gospel? What was well, the, the good news John was preaching? The good news, uh, depending on your perspective, can also be bad news. I that think in John's John's perfect perspective at that time, he's talking. The he's coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand. That winnowing fork to some means your wheat. To those who are responding to John's message of repentance, to those who are pre- preparing for the coming of the Messiah, the winnowing fork that's that's salvation. That is being saved. It says we're going to he's we're going to be gathered into a storehouse. It's it's salvation, but to someone who's not going to respond to that, to someone who is not prepared for the Messiah, not prepared for the gospel, for the consummation of all things, they're the chaff. They're the things that are to be burned away. It's interesting. I, I spoke on John the Baptist for a Christmas sermon back in December, and I used uh, John the Baptist, and I used that as good news and bad news, because when John the Baptist came, he came to bring people a realization of their sins. That's part of the gospel. A gospel the gospel Absolutely. isn't all just good news. For it to be good news, we first have to receive the bad news. And that bad news is in <laughs> is that we are sinners in need of salvation. 
exactly. You, I really believe you can't understand the gospel unless you first have some sort of grasp on the law. Exactly. I think that's, uh, like you mentioned, that a lot of people who don't know the gospel are Christians. Uh, it's, yes. I think we have a, well, just like you mentioned, I think a lot of the people that don't understand the gospel and don't know what it is uh, today are actually Christians. And I think that comes from a deficiency of teaching about the law in churches. It's not necessarily the people's fault. It's the, it's the pastors, it's the preachers, it's the evangelists, the teachers, the professors, whoever it may be sort of want to stick to the good things about the gospel that sort of want to stick to the happy news and rather than the law, the thing that we can't fulfill, the thing that we can't do, the thing that we need saving from. They don't want the bad news with the good news. That, that's the thing about it too, is, is that a lot of people just don't know what the gospel is. And when and what, what's happened in our denomination that you know we grew up in is that the law was preached, mm -hmm. but you never had any gospel. So like I understood that I was a sinner. Mm -hmm. But I never fully grasped what that first right. John passage means. But if you stumble, there's an advocate with the Father. Like I knew that Jesus was out there somewhere for an advocate, but it never really hit me for a while because I was always taught the law, the law, the law, the law. And I never got the gospel coming through the law. And a good sermon will preach both. And that's why I love the Absolutely. Lutherans so much. Absolutely. Because I think it's sort of strange. I'm not, uh, not Calvinist, not Lutheran, not sort of from that edge of Reformed theology but that sort of language the way they preach sort of appeals to me because definitely in what i guess you could call popular arminianism arminianism that doesn't that wouldn't understand the word arminianism there's a deficiency in and again i think that's interesting that you pointed out that yeah even in our background there's a deficiency of gospel we have a tendency to preach all all gospel or all law I would say it's not only our background. I think it's every background right now. Because, I mean, look what's happening in your modern churches. It's not, let's come together and hear the gospel on Sunday. It's, oh, let's gather together because the worship's so good. Oh, the pastor's message is so practical. Right. And what it's always this, it's so much story. And we read it in a book for, uh, do you remember our last semester? We read that one book by that one uh, author. I don't really want to slam him on here, but the book was essentially all about how we need to gather people in churches and anything about the gospel, anything about our, uh, anything about uh, being spirit led, anything that we hold dear needs to be done in a back room in a small group and all the other stuff needs to be done in right. the big room with the, with the big production of worship and right. the super practical sermon where you give a, a sweet little life story while you're trying to sneak in scripture on them. There's no gospel at all. That's why we have so many churches that are full of absolutely lost people. And it's, it's sort of you have to pretend that you have to be seeker sensitive to have your that's your five steps to a better life or a five steps to a happy home, that that's your application and that the gospel is just some abstract theology, just some idea. But it's it's really the opposite. You can't get your you can't get your application. You won't those five steps to a happy home, your five steps to a better life, five steps to success. That's not going to do anything. It's not eternal. And, you know, a good pastor thinks that that's what he needs to preach, but a good pastor will preach this, the gospel. Um, and the, <laughs> I mean, we're going to get into this in later episodes, but I mean, me and you both believe the gospel itself is justification by faith alone. And I, post, I posted this the other day. I found this wonderful quote by Martin Luther. Every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they'll forget it. And Absolutely. that is the truth. You know, Absolutely. And, and if anyone gets mad, you preach the same thing every week, just in a different way. Well, exactly. That's my task. That right. is my task and your task and any pastor's task is to preach the gospel week in, week out, not to sinners, 
but to believers also. Your task is to preach from Scripture. And anybody who thinks that you can preach anything from Scripture that doesn't lead back to Christ, that doesn't lead back to the gospel, that doesn't lead back to the concepts of grace and justification by faith, they don't want a message from Scripture. That's right. Every single page, every single text, somewhere in there is Christ. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures for truth, but you don't realize that I'm standing in front of you, and they pointed to me. And G- But Jesus said, I mean, he's like, you search the scriptures for truth and you're trying to find life in them, but you don't realize that they testify of me and I am the life and I'm standing right here in front of you. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those people were missing back in that day. Absolutely. And that's, I think, any gospel presentation, whether it's whether it was John the Baptist or Jesus himself preaching the gospel, is both about what the gospel means now and what, what Christ is doing later. Yes. So anytime you see... There's a lot of kingdom language in Matthew. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying this kingdom is here. So, and then, of course, the Jewish people at that time are thinking, well, where is this kingdom? You know, we know the Messiah, he's going to come and he's going to be a great leader. He's going to establish his kingdom. The government's going to sit on his shoulders, all these prophecies about the Christ, about the Messiah. And they're thinking, where is it? But I think they, they missed that there's sort of a dual purpose in the gospel. It's what Christ is doing now and what Christ is going to do. Yes, he established his kingdom in the incarnation. God interacts with his people in a way now that he established then that is unlike anything seen before. His spirit is in each of us. Uh, it's an incredible thing. But the gospel also must be preached in view of what is to come, of the consummation of all things. He's of final salvation, not just salvation in our flesh, not just salvation in this time, but salvation in God's eternal kingdom. I'm going to jump back on these scriptures and get us back on <laughs> to what we were planning on doing for this episode. <laughs> we kind of got off on a tangent there, but I thought it was a good tangent. So Absolutely. Uh, I, you spoke a moment ago of Luke and, you know, you talked of the coming of Christ with John the Baptist and here in Matthew chapter one, verses 20 through 21, this is the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph. And he says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child, this is, uh, and Luke is called the holy child, who has been conceived of her, is the holy, is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And if that's not the good news, I don't know what is. Amen. And, you know, you find this theme, like what what we're speaking about this this, uh, podcast episode, over and over again of the coming of Christ and the entire Old Testament is like we said earlier is pointing to him. And then when you get to the beginning of the new Testament, you find all these promises and all these wondrous things, the coming of Christ, like John chapter one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory and the glory is the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. And I mean, that was good news for the people of the Old Testament because they were looking for him all the way back to Adam and Eve. You know, if, if you open up your Bible and look at the book of Genesis, when Eve has her first child, she doesn't say, oh, look, I, I've got a kid. The translation there is I've got a man child with the help of the Lord. But if you really look at the Hebrew, it could say I've got a man child, the Lord. With the help of is not even in the Hebrew. That's something that our English translations have added. She, well, a, lot of tra- a lot of people believe that when Eve had that first child, she was looking back to the promise in uh, Genesis chapter 3. That wow. although that, uh, let's see, Genesis chapter 315, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, then you flip the page. I have gotten a man child. 
the Lord. She thought that Cain, and we we know obviously that Cain is not the the Lord, the man child, the one who was promised because we see his life later on, but already all the way back to Eve, there is this expectation that there is going to be one who comes and saves the people from their sins. And we have it in Matthew chapter one, John chapter one, Luke chapter one, two, and three. You've got it all over the beginning of the new Testament and it is good news. Yeah. And, and on that, again, not to get back on our tangent of the kingdom and all that kind of stuff, that's really the same message we have, the same expectation we should have. Again, it functions a little differently, but I mean, think of, think of the message of the prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, to, to simplify it, Christ is coming. Yeah. Messiah is coming. Watch for him. These yeah. are the signs. And what, is, what does Jesus tells us to, tell us to do? Watch for his coming. Yes, he came once. Yes, he came in the flesh. Yes, we had the incarnation. We had the crucifixion. We had the resurrection. But the message of the gospel today is not just what Jesus did. It's that Christ is coming. And that good news, like I was talking about, stretches all the way back to the Old Testament. What do they have faith in, Colt? Christ. How, how is Abraham justified by his faith? What was the object of Abraham's faith? I'm not sure if Abraham knew it, but it was Christ. Yes. It was the coming one. Absolutely. I mean, if you really, really search through the Old Testament, you're going to find this expectation of the coming Messiah. And it, it it's manifest in different ways. It's spoken of in different ways, but in every every instant, it is they are having faith in the one who is coming that will redeem them from their sins. And we find this uh, explained fully by Paul in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest and being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then this very famous verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as we were speaking of earlier, that's the bad side of the gospel. But here's the good side, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, who God displayed publicly as propitiation through his blood, by his blood, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in forbearance, of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Amen. That's speaking of all those people, and that, that's speaking of David sinning with Bathsheba, and he had faith in God and pleaded for God's mercy. God did not Absolutely. just look over the sins of David. He passed over them in forbearance because he knew that Christ one day would bear on the cross the sins of Abraham, the sins of Adam, the sins of David, the sins of Solomon, everyone who had faith in God we're all looking forward. And when Christ is on the cross, he's not only redeeming us today, 2000 years later, he's looking two and 3000 years backwards and redeeming all those people too. Right. And that's, that's something I, again, I think a lot of people don't like to think about. They do not. In our, in our modern churches is that the father didn't just forget your sins. There is a punishment. Yes. God would not be just if he did not punish sin. It's not just a, it's not just a clear, okay, you asked for forgiveness and it's just gone. It's that sin was punished, right? but the good news, see, that's the bad news. The bad news is that we have a law. We have this thing, this standard, and the bad news is we will never meet that standard. But the good news is that someone came, God, the son came and he fulfilled that standard and stood in our place as an exact punishment for our sins. If you want to look into that concept, it's uh, the concept of penal substitutionary atonement. Yes. 
that Christ was our exact punishment, that he was an exact stand and not even just some sort of representative that paid for a concept of sin. No, he paid for the exact sins that we commit, that we will commit, that anyone, any of these figures, these great sins we read about in the Bible, any of those figures, Christ died for those exact sins. That's why and, you know, we read, it pleased the Father to bruise him. Yes. In this great cosmic scheme of things that the Father... God the Father, it pleased him to show his mercy, but also to show his justice in the punishment, in the bruising of God the Son. Yeah, and it wasn't, it, it's not, it pleased him as in God's up there with a maniacal laugh as Christ right. is on the cross. Right. No, I mean, some of our Reformed brothers and sisters would like to think so, I think the way they talk about it sometimes, <laughs> right. you know, it pleased the Father to crush him. Well, no, it, <laughs> you know, that that's almost a translation bias, as you find in the ESV. Mm-hmm. When you True. really look at that the, that word, it's not it's not pleased as in he was happy, right? It's a pleased as it was satisfactory, right? Because the justice of God demanded that right. someone pay the penalty of sin. Someone needed to pay the sins of David because David didn't pay right. it. David, absolutely. when he sinned with Bathsheba and he killed Uriah, absolutely, he should have died. Right. We there even read was, in the law that yes, anyone who takes the blood of a man, the, his blood is required of him. There that's, was nothing. Yeah, that's what David deserved. But David pleaded for mercy mm-hmm. and God gave it to him because God, as Romans said, he passed over the sins previously committed in his forbearance, forbearance of what? Forbearance of Christ on the cross. I mean, it's he just such just, good stuff. <laughs> he's just in his punishment and he is the justifier in his mercy. Oh, yes. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> we might need to save that for our episode on uh, justification. I think that's a good idea. But, you know, back to penal substitutionary atonement, um, a lot of people believe that Arminians don't believe in that, which is which just baffles me. Um, penal substitutionary atonement is a orthodox, right. biblical, and classically Arminian and Calvinist and of the reform branch. Penal substitutionary atonement is a, a majority, not a right. minority among Arminians. Right. A lot of people believe that we, we believe in the governmental uh, theory of atonement or Christus Victor, but I mean, we were talking about this the other day that Governmental theory of atonement, I see it in scripture. I also see Christus Victor. And it's not that these are standalone theories of atonement. It's that right. without penal substitutionary atonement, none of the other ones can work. No, absolutely not. Anyone who's actually read what Arminius had to say about the concepts of justification, of grace, of really looking back, penal substitutionary atonement, it's, I mean, it sounds, it doesn't just sound reformed, it is reformed. That's right. He's somebody coming from the Dutch Reformed Church. It's, he confessed the Heidelberg Confession until he died. That's, I mean, he lived and breathed the stuff. He, I mean, yeah, uh, like like free will and things like that. People people assume because you say free will that that means it is an action on our part. Yeah, automatically we're semi-Pelagians or Pelagians. Right. No. <laughs> no, and it's although some I do feel have again popular Arminianism, people who, if you told them they were Arminian, would be surprised. Maybe. I can see, I can see how, how somebody from a more Reformed perspective could see some semi-Pelagianism, but in anybody who is actually theologically informed about classical Arminianism, about, you know, what, what the remonstrance was about, what all the, the articles meant, that's, it's nonsense. Yes, Absolutely. And the, the issue is, is that you've got people that have twisted the scriptures, mm. 
twisted the name right. Arminian. Right. Um, Charles Finney is a good example. You know, right. he was an absolute semi-Pelagian. Absolutely. I mean, just absolutely semi-Pelagian. Charles Finney was a semi-Pelagian, but he called himself an Arminian. And right. so what that did to the, all the Armenians was make us look like semi-Pelagians. Absolutely. And nobody else at that time believed the way he did, except him and his followers. You know, he is one of the people who brought out, who brought that semi-Pelagian stain upon uh, Armenian. And for those out there, listeners out there that do not understand what Pelagianism or semi-Pelagian is, Pelagius was a opponent. I, I, you could say that, right? An opponent of Augustine. Absolutely. And, Pelagius did not believe that original sin was a concept at all. Pelagius actually believed that if you put someone on a island alone, a desert island, that that person could actually live their entire life without sin. They wouldn't sin at all. They would be sinless. And he also believed that people could, by their own work, be righteous. And Augustine said, absolutely not. Then what's the point of the cross? What's the point of Christ? What's the point of all this? And that's where we get our uh, concept from those arguments between the two of original sin and all these other things. Well, semi-Pelagian, someone who believes that, well, yes, people are kind of good, but they also kind of need grace. So it's like, right. a, it's like a partnership between God and man. I mean, if you've ever heard it said, if you do you, your part, God will do his part. Well, that's semi-Pelagian <laughs> theology, and that's trash. <laughs> absolute crash you know if christ saves nothing else does right and And that i'm i'm paraphrasing but we see the same thing paul says in scripture if salvation could have been by the law then it would be by the law the law it should be by the law but it's not that's right so any any room you make for yourself in your salvation is that's that's not that's not a place you should be it's all god it's all him if Christ saves, then nothing else does. Meaning that if it's truly the work of Christ on the cross that saves us, then it's none of our works that can. Because if our works could save us, do we really still believe that God would have sent his son to pay the ultimate price for our sins if there was a chance we could save ourselves? He shouldn't have. He shouldn't have. And he didn't do that for that reason. Right. He did it because there was no other way. Right. Everyone thinks the cross is like plan B. No, no, no. This is plan A. Right. And we, we think plan A was the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. No, that was all pointing to plan A on right. the cross. Right. None of that was plan A and the cross was plan B. But I, I, I understand why people do it, but I really cannot stand it when it's like, uh, God decided that the old covenant was so bad that he had to bring the crop. That's not how it worked. The the old covenant was good because first of all, God ordained it and he gave the old covenant to Moses to help the people uh, be forgiven of their sins by the blood of a living being, by the blood of a a lamb without blemish. And all that was not in itself the redemption that God was bringing, all that pointing to Christ on the cross. Right. It's God's perfect law. It is God's perfect standard. There is no error. There is no mistake. There's nothing. The law is not bad. No, the law is good. The, the law, law is, is our good. teacher. With Again, the law is called our teacher, it is our tutor, it is our instructor. Because when we look at the law, we see ourselves. That's right. We, the law is a mirror of ourselves. We see this thing, this gold standard, this thing that God requires of us. And we look into that mirror and we see ourselves up next to that. 
and we see I don't I don't measure up. Yep. And when you see that, that's that is the Holy Spirit. That is His convicting grace. We see our sin, which is well, a gift of God. Again, that's this is not some semi-Pelagian stuff. This is we do not see our sin unless God reveals our sin. That's and absolutely when we correct. See that we see ourselves in the law and we see Christ in the gospel. Yeah, we're all blinded to our sin. I mean, mm-hmm. and it, it's the grace of God that when we look at the law or we look at uh, the cross, so we're repulsed by the cross. Right. It's the grace of God when we when we look at the cross or we understand the cross or even if you see a cross, that's why Protestants, I believe, don't like crucifixes because, and a lot of people don't like crucifixes. It 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 it's because when we see that, we're repulsed by it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see him on the tree. Right. Why? Because. That should have been me on that trip. Right. Oh, that's a good point. I, that should have been me there. And when we see it, we're offended. Paul calls it the offense of the cross. Yes, it is offensive because it's a mirror, just like the law is. It shows you that's you. This is who you should, this is where you should be, sinner. But I, Christ, I'm here for you. And we don't want to accept that because we still like to think that we could do something alongside the cross. When that cross is all sufficient. That's again, that's that dual news that the cross, that the cross to the unregenerate, the unregenerate, the cross to the unsaved is, you know, when their eyes are open, when the Holy Spirit reveals to them their sin, that is, I mean, it's obviously something you don't want to see. You're seeing your punishment. You're seeing the thing that you deserve, but to the regenerate, to the one who God has saved, that's joy. That's right. It is absolute. It's, it's all things sort of at once. And, you know, after the cross, we have this hope of resurrection. Absolutely. John 11, 25 through 26 says, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus right. asks, do you believe this? And I think that would be a great sermon for every mega church pastor and every <laughs> one of the mega churches in themselves aren't bad. It's no. the mega. I like big churches. It's cool. I mean, if you've ever been in a church that size, it's really surreal to stand among say 10,000 people all praising, worshiping and lifting up the name of Jesus. It's really, really surreal. However, yeah. the pastors of these churches do not preach Christ and him crucified. Yeah. And, that's the sad, scary thing. I mean, and a great, great question to all of them. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ is the resurrection? life? Do you believe that Christ is the only resurrection in life? Jesus didn't say, I am a resurrection. I am a life. He says, I am the resurrection, the life. And then John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do we believe this? And probably if we looked at some statistics right now, probably about 80% of the church would probably say no. <laughs> I just talked to somebody this week that you know, I don't understand how we think we've got it all right. Well, I don't think we've got it all right. And he said, no. some of those other religions have to have something right. Maybe a little, but if they miss Christ, they miss all of it. Right. I mean, you, you find um, types, types of Christ maybe in some other places with peace, the idea of peace or the idea of redemption the idea of life and the afterlife, that those are types of Christ you might be able to salvage here and there to help uh, as a place to where you could find some common ground with someone who is of another 
religion. And I'm not talking like another denomination. I'm not talking like the difference between a Baptist and a Methodist. I'm talking like the difference between a Christian and a Muslim, you know? Right. Uh, there might be something in that religion that you could make a bridge between the two, but if they've missed Christ, they've missed it all. Right. And I, I would actually say a lot of the things, I mean, of course, the all the religions of the world I do believe have something in common, and it's that most, if not all, have some sort of system, have some sort of a law. They have a set of things you can do. But see, the difference in the gospel, the difference in real orthodox biblical christianity and all other religions is the fact that there's nothing you can do to fulfill that law nothing you can do to fulfill those commands nothing you can do to please god or the gods or how whatever that religion worships whether it's i mean it's secular religions and i know that's that's sort of an oxymoron (laughs) but uh, there are a lot of things in the world that act like religions that are pretend religions that we do. We spend our lives trying to please, <laughs> right, right. We we spend our entire lives trying to please either a system or a person, and we, I mean, we, in some ways, feel like we can measure up. Sometimes, the gospel, yeah. the, the the Bible, is the only thing, the only piece of scripture in the world that says you can't do it. That's right. It's the only the only religion where the <laughs> the supreme being, where the deity, is the one who who sacrificed for the people and not the people for the deity. That's right. Secularism will be a good topic for a later show also. Absolutely. Because I mean, they've got priests, they've Mm -hmm. got got priests, they've got uh, evangelists, they've got uh, a religious system you have to follow. They got a way to justify yourself. I mean, it's a whole religion and America has fallen into it. The church Mm -hmm. is falling into it also. Sure has. We think as long as we post whatever the modern thing on Twitter is that we're redeemed from all of our past sins, whatever, <laughs> whatever it's Christ or it's nothing. Amen. And uh, we've reached our time Cold, If you'd like to read our closing scripture, we hope that you would continue listening with us and we hope to see you next time. Cold. And now for our benediction. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.